Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. For the past several weeks, I've been trying to instill this concept that the way we need to approach the writings of the apostle, the writings of men like Paul, is with an attitude of humility and trust. Humility, I've pointed out, is the the prerequisite to any kind of learning. To put it simply, uh, you can't teach someone who already thinks they know everything. You can put the information out there, but they're not going to take it in. They'll either reject it as foolish, or they'll try to shoehorn it into their existing system of thought. Basically, so long as the student is proud, they're going to stand in judgment over the teacher either accepting or rejecting what they have to say based on whether or not it lines up with their own opinions. But they'll never actually learn. And the reason is because they'll be unable to receive any kind of information that doesn't already align with their own way of thinking. This means that it's imperative that the student learn to respect their teacher if they're going to learn. There are moments in instruction when the teacher is going to introduce concepts that don't make sense at first blush, concepts that challenge the student's existing framework. And if the student doesn't respect the teacher's knowledge or wisdom or skill in that moment, then they'll brush off the instruction they're offering instead of receive it. In short, they will not learn. We've learned that it's for this same reason that Paul has been imploring the Corinthians to adjust the way they think about him in the early chapters of this letter. It's apparent that the Corinthians had come to think that they had surpassed Paul in their understanding, or if not uh, surpassed per se, then at least they thought they knew some things that Paul didn't. And so in the early parts of this letter, Paul first defends his ministry and then admonishes the Corinthians for their arrogance before finally declaring Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is an image that's contrived to demand the Corinthians' respect, one that reminds the Corinthians who, uh, what their relationship with Paul is, and that's of the student, and Paul, their teacher. Of course, I've said that this is the way we need to relate not only to Paul, but really to all of the apostles. They are all collectively our fathers in the faith. Virtually everything we know about Christ was delivered to the church first through them. And so when they write to us, and even more so when they write to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, We need to listen. Our place is not to challenge their instruction, but to receive it. Of course, this doesn't mean that we don't ask questions from time to time. Any good student will ask their teacher questions. Still, there's a difference between asking a question, right, and calling into question. And our role as students is not to call into question, but to question rather in order to seek further clarity. In short, we're to interrogate, not to rebut or disprove, 
but in order to learn, in order to understand. And it's for this reason that I believe that expository preaching is really the best kind of preaching there is. Since expository preaching, more than any other kind of preaching, captures the appropriate attitude that we're supposed to bring to the text. If I could put it this way, if we're giving the apostles the kind of respect that we've been talking about, then it means that the doctrines that we believe in as Christians should really emerge from specific passages, from specific texts. Meaning we don't begin with a system of doctrine and then try to force the Scripture to fit our own preconceived notions of God, man, and salvation. That would be to act as the proud student, the arrogant student, who stands in judgment over their teacher instead of submission under them. Rather, we start with the individual text of Scripture, grant the author the leeway to mean what they say in that context, and then allow the outcome of that to shape and transform our overall theological system. This is how we learn. This is how we grow as Christians. By allowing the Bible to speak to us in its own context, without trying to mitigate or translate what it has to say in a way that makes it less challenging for us to accept. This is really what expository preaching aims for. In case you're not familiar with that term, expository preaching, to exposit means simply to expound upon. Another way of putting it would be to demonstrate or to display. Uh, you think of an automobile exposition, for instance, and that's an event where various types of cars are put on display. That's what expository preaching aims for. It tries to demonstrate or display the meaning of the text of the congregation, meaning the expository preacher uh, doesn't just say, this is what God says, take my word for it. Rather, he says, this is what God says. Now, let me show you in the text that this is what it says. He not only takes his major points from the text itself instead of coming up with them on his own, but he also explains what those points mean from the text itself. It's a kind of preaching that's really anchored in the Word of God. There are a number of uh, convictions that drive this kind of preaching, and One such conviction is the belief that our role as students of the apostles is not to stand in judgment over the text, but to sit in submission under it. If you ever wonder why expository preachers tend to move verse by verse through a book of Scripture, this is why. It's not because expository preaching is only expository if the preacher is moving through the text verse by verse. A sermon can be expository without moving verse by verse, just as you can move verse by verse without being expository. It all depends on really how you interact with the text, whether the passage itself is shaping the preacher's sermon or not. And that can certainly happen apart from moving verse by verse through the text. Still, the expository preacher moves in this way because they're working under the conviction that the preacher is not so much the master over the text, but a servant under it. Meaning the expository preacher works under the conviction that they're not trying to impose any kind of meaning onto the text. Instead, they're trying to bring the meaning that's already there in the text out. In a sense, they're almost trying to take their personality out of the church's corporate interaction with the text and simply allow the church to learn straight from the apostles. 
That's sort of hard to do when you're jumping from one text to another. Because if you think about it, even in the selection of the text, the preacher's own thoughts and opinions are going to start to come through. They're going to pick passages they think are important to the congregation, meaning they're going to control the subject matter that the congregation congregation is forced to deal with from week to week, and that only through the lens of the text that the preacher thinks are fitting for the occasion. Difficult and challenging texts get neglected. Texts that the preacher deems unimportant, but which Paul tells us are profitable for teaching, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness, they get neglected. This is why I, as an expository preacher, move verse by verse through the Bible. And of course, the upshot of all of this is that occasionally I end up coming across a passage that really shakes my understanding of some key concept in the Scripture, either about God or about man or the church. Essentially, I go to the text holding to one idea of what the Bible teaches about a particular subject. But then as I wrestle with that particular text in its context, I'm forced to realize that part of what I thought before is wrong, or at least it's incomplete. There's something in the text itself that I can't resolve by simply making it fit into my own theological structures. And when that happens, I have to decide what's going to move here. What's going to change? Is it going to be the text? Am I going to make it fit what I want it to say? Or is it going to be me? And the right answer, of course, is me. I'm the one that's supposed to change in that situation, not the text. I don't stand in judgment over the text. I sit in submission under it. Well, friends, this morning's text is one of those passages. If you recall, I said at the end of chapter 4 that Paul is going to say some things in this letter that are going to challenge our perceptions of our faith. And that when these moments come, we must be ready to submit to his teaching instead of standing in judgment over it. If you recall, I said the Corinthians clearly had some problems with at least some of what Paul was teaching, and they didn't want to accept it. And so we have to assume that the same is going to happen to us. I just didn't expect it to happen so soon. I had some passages in mind that I thought would be sort of challenging for us, but to be honest with you, I didn't think it would be this one. I'm familiar with this passage. While I've never preached it, I've referred to it many times in other settings as a passage that I know reasonably well. But I have to tell you, as I've gotten an up-close look at what Paul says here today, I've encountered some really fascinating concepts that I didn't expect when I got started. And I have to admit, some of them are really getting me to rethink my position on at least one key concept in the church. If I could put it this way, whenever we're dealing with the text, there are kind of two layers. There's the point that the author is driving at. And then there are some incidental elements which may not be the author's main point, but which not only still communicate something true, but which also can carry some pretty profound implications 
I think of Philippians 2, for instance. At the beginning of Philippians 2, Paul discusses the humility that Christ demonstrated in becoming a man. If you know that passage and you know that Paul's point there is not to deliver a theological treatise on the Incarnation. His point is to say, Christ put his own interests second by becoming a man, you do likewise. And yet, in the way that he describes the Incarnation of Christ, we still learn things about the nature of the Incarnation. That wasn't the primary purpose of the passage, and yet any serious discussion on the Incarnation is going to have to deal with what Paul tells us about the Incarnation from, in Philippians 2. In other words, the theological reality of the Incarnation is really more of a subpoint in that text. It's supporting evidence to the main point, which is the humility of Christ. But in providing that evidence, Paul also gives us valuable insight into the very nature of the Incarnation itself. And that's what we're dealing here with in today's text. The main point that Paul is communicating here, that's nothing new for me, or I would venture to say really any of you. The main idea that Paul is communicating here is precisely what you think it is, or at least it probably is. There are some secondary elements, though, some of this supporting evidence that I think are incredibly surprising. Or at least it was for me. So I'll tell you what I want to do. I want us to spend three weeks together in this passage. And in our first two weeks, meaning this morning and next week, I want to deal just with the main idea that Paul is communicating in this text. But then the week after that, I want us to come back again and consider the implications of these secondary supporting elements because I think that could really revolutionize the way you think about some very familiar practices within the church. I don't want to try to do that this week because I think there's simply too much to cover. I think it would be detracting from our main point today, the, the, the point that Paul is trying to deal with in this text. But next week, let's do or actually two weeks from now, let's do it. We'll come back, consider some of the side implications of this text. And I think this may be where some of the more significant challenges and transformation from this passage takes place. It actually comes through these side issues. But first, let's go ahead and explore the main idea of the text. And that is what we are to do with sin in the body of Christ. There are instances where some kind of serious sin is being committed by a member of the church. And the church becomes aware of that sin and of the member's unrepentance from that sin. What should the church do when that happens? That's the subject we're going to explore here together this morning and next week. And let's begin by reading the passage together. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It's the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 5. And the Apostle Paul says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, 
You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. At the very foundation of Christian doctrine is the notion of grace. It is so foundational to what we believe, to what distinguishes us from the world, that you could almost say that it is synonymous with the gospel itself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are among the very first verses that we as Christians teach our children because we believe that they, more than any other, capture the very essence of our faith. At the very heart of Christianity is the notion of unmerited favor. It's part of what makes the gospel so good. That is the good news of the gospel, right? That, that God, apart from absolutely any good whatsoever that we have done, has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the good news is even better than that, since it's not just that God saves us apart from any good that we've done, but that he's actually done it in spite of all the evil that we've done. And this is the ultimate reason why Christ had to die on the cross. He did it because man is evil. He's guilty of all kinds of sin, and the penalty for sin is death, eternal death, actually, which we're supposed to suffer on account of our sin. And the good news is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. Again, as it says in Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the really good news. Not just that God saves us apart from what we've done but that he actually saves us in spite of what we've done. In the words of Paul, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. 
Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, my friends, that is the really good news of the gospel, that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because God not only knows our sin, but while we were still in that sinful condition and even hostile to God, He reconciled us by punishing that sin in Christ. You compare Christianity with every other religion in the world. And this is the thing that really sets us apart. It's not our belief in only a single God. It's not even our belief in the incarnation, in the idea that God would become a man. It's our belief that eternal life is based not on what we do, but on what God has done for us. It's our belief that salvation isn't something we earn. It's something we receive. It's a gift. It's a gift that's given to men and women in their unrighteousness. The problem that sometimes arises out of this notion of grace is what to do with sin in the life of the Christian. Again, Christians freely acknowledge that they are not righteous, or at least we're supposed to be able to acknowledge that. Belief not only in human sinfulness, but in our ability to overcome our sin on our own is endemic to our faith. You add to that the fact that we also believe that growth in righteousness is progressive, meaning it's something that takes place over time, and we will freely admit that we're sinners. It's not just that we were sinners. No, we are sinners, right? Meaning we don't expect perfection from our fellow brothers and sisters. We come to gatherings like this one this morning knowing that the people sitting next to us are still struggling with sin and sometimes in some pretty significant ways. We don't hide or deny that fact. We own and accept it. To some degree, you might even say that we celebrate it in the sense that our sins and failures serve as beacons that guide us back into the arms of Christ over and over again, where we're reminded afresh of the glorious good news that our salvation is absolutely free. The question is, though, what do we do with this sin? Or more specifically, how do we respond when it becomes apparent to the church that one of our members is engaged in ongoing sin. Does this notion of grace mean that we just learn to accept it and move on? Or are we supposed to do something about it? Not only do many churches today wrestle with this question, but it appears that the Corinthians did as well. Or at least they should have. 
Maybe they didn't wrestle with it quite as much as they should have. We can see the situation right here in verse 1. Paul's received this report that there's a member of the congregation who's living with his stepmother. And the Corinthians have done nothing about it. This has been the Corinthian response to sin in the body of Christ. Passivity. Inaction. Even more from what we see here, they seem fairly resolved in the matter. We'll see later in this passage, it would seem that Paul has actually written to them before this about what to do in situations like this one. And it would seem that the Corinthians have taken issue with Paul's instructions. So it's not like they're really conflicted over what to do. No, they've made a fairly resolved decision. This is the right course of action to take in this kind of a situation. They think this is what the church should do. Paul notes, verse 1, that this is something that not even the unbelievers in Corinth would tolerate. Even they would find this kind of behavior repugnant. Which is really saying something, by the way, because not only were the Greeks permissive of all kinds of sexual activity that you and I would deem sinful, but Corinth especially was known as a sexually promiscuous city. My guys, guys, you understand, this is a port city. This is a place where sailors get off the boat after being out to sea for an extended period of time. And as ravenous as their lust is, Paul is saying that even they would take a look at the Corinthian church and say, Hey, can't you control yourself? Don't you have any morals? Is this the appropriate response to sin in the body of Christ? Is this what grace means? Is one of the implications of the gospel that is that our threshold for fellowship is actually lower than what the world might accept? Since, after all, the blood of Christ covers all our sins? Now, before you rush and give me the answer you think I want to hear, really think about what I'm asking here. Because the way you answer this question really defines the gospel. What is the threshold for membership in the church with respect to sin? Is there one? Should the church be willing to admit drug addicts or drunkards, for instance, or adulterers? What about abusers? You know, pedophiles, wife beaters? What about racists? Is it okay to admit them in the church? Already, I'd imagine you're feeling the tension in the question. There's a cultural narrative that we subscribe to that tends to say that some sins are more acceptable and forgivable than others. And so when we start talking about those kinds of sins, the church is willing to throw open the doors and say, we're all a mess and God loves us anyways. I think of the drug addict, for instance. I think it's very in vogue at the moment to accept the drug addict into the church and say the grace of God is sufficient to cover all your sin. It maybe wasn't in vogue 50 years ago, but it's pretty acceptable today. And I'd submit that part of the reason why it's so acceptable now is because drug addiction itself isn't seen as some great sin today. Drug addicts are viewed as victims more than they are sinners. They hurt themselves, not others. But what about the racist? Or the adulterer? Or the wife beater? 
Are they okay? Suddenly you may not be quite so sure, perhaps. I'd imagine that you probably already know what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, yes, they're okay too, because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all sin. And yet there's something about it that makes you uneasy. Something doesn't feel quite right about that. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, I am being a bit provocative in the way I'm phrasing this question. Before it's all said and done, I think you'll see over the next few weeks that there's a more precise way to get at the question I'm asking than in the way I just asked it. Even I wouldn't say the church should be willing to admit all these individuals in the way I framed that question. But I ask it this way because I want you to feel the tension in this situation since I think if you can understand that, then you're set up to understand the dynamics that are at work in today's passage. You're ready to understand why the Corinthians are so willing to accept this individual and at the same time why Paul is so upset about his inclusion in the church. You're ready to understand both of their positions and how Paul ultimately resolves this tension. So what's the answer? How should we respond to sin in the body? Paul provides the answer in this passage, and I think we can summarize what he says here in three points, three different kinds of responses to sins in the body of Christ. And the first response, the only response that we'll be dealing with today, is this. Mourning, not arrogance. The church is to respond to sin in the body of Christ with mourning and sorrow, not arrogant boasting. This response occurs in the very first response that we see in this passage where Paul erupts this news from Corinth viscerally in verse 2. And you are arrogant, he says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Of the three responses that summarize Paul's treatment of sin in the body of Christ, this is the only one that captures the attitude of the Christian. The other responses explain the action we're to take, but this one captures the attitude with which we're to do it, the feeling that's supposed to accompany the church's realization that sin exists in the body of Christ. And in this we learn something of how we're supposed to think about sin not just how we're supposed to react to it. So what does Paul mean here when he says this? You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? If you think about it, that's a rather interesting contrast, arrogance and mourning. We don't normally think of those as opposites, and yet Paul presents them with a not this, but this sort of a contrast. So what's he mean here? Probably the best place to begin is by asking what Paul means by arrogant here. In what way were the, the Corinthians arrogant with respect to this man's sin? I think there are two ways we could answer that question. First, we could say that they were arrogant with respect to Paul, meaning they're arrogant in the sense that they think themselves better, smarter, wiser than Paul. 
We've already seen that sort of arrogance expressed in context. It seems to be the basis for Paul's sarcasm in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 4. The Corinthians believed that the reason they didn't suffer the way Paul did was because they were spiritually superior to him in one way or another. And so Paul first mocks them for this thought. And then in verses 14 through 20, he reminds them of the relationship they really enjoy with him, and that's of a son and him their father. Paul then warns them, verses 18 through 20. Again, this is chapter 4, uh, and actually through 21. He says, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come with a rod or with, a, with love and a spirit of gentleness? We see this same sort of arrogance expressed here in this passage. And with respect to this issue as well, again, we learn in verse 9 that Paul has already written to the Corinthians with instructions not to associate with sexually immoral people, and then he apparently feels the need to explain and qualify that statement, apparently because the Corinthians have not only ignored Paul's instruction, but they're apparently pushing back on it to some degree. They've rejected his counsel. So this is one way we could read this word arrogant. We could see it as an expression that captures the Corinthian response to Paul's counsel specifically. The trouble is this word mourn. In what way is mourning the appropriate response to Paul instead of arrogance? One would think that humility would be the corresponding attitude in that scenario. Paul would say, ought you not rather to be humble? if he were talking about how they're responding to his apostolic authority. And this leads us to the second option. The second option is to see this as a reflection of their attitude towards God, meaning they're arrogant in the sense that they think God can't touch them, that they're beyond the reach of his rebuke. You definitely see this kind of correspondence between arrogance and mourning in the scripture. In fact, we saw a great example of this just a few weeks back. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses warns those that think God will not punish them for their disobedience, that this thought will result in the discipline of all of Israel, both the righteous and the unrighteous. He says, Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19, uh, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. You see similar warnings in other passages as well. In the book of Isaiah, for instance, Israel's hypocritical worship is seen as a kind of arrogance. For example, as God observes this kind of worship in Isaiah 29, He declares, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are done in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? He says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding? 
there's apparently a kind of inversion in the creator-creature relationship in that kind of worship. And so as a response, God goes on to tell Israel how he's going to judge the nation in order to reestablish the proper order in this relationship with them. Sorrow, on the other hand, is the reflection of a heart that is genuinely repentant of sin. Paul, for instance, talks about making the Corinthians sorrowful to the point of repentance in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. Make no mistake, sorrow is not the same thing as repentance, and yet at the same time, it's hard to say that someone is genuinely repentant of sin if there's not some kind of actual regret or remorse over their sin. Again, the Greek word for repentance, remember, is the word metanoia, and it means literally a change of mind. And I've explained recently that this is just a fantastic way of describing repentance biblically, because biblically, true obedience, true righteousness springs up as an expression of the heart. It comes from the inside of the person as their mind is renewed to actually agree with God in his judgments. Friends, this means that the genuinely repentant person is going to look on the sins that they've committed and hate it. They're going to be repulsed by it. And this means that when they look on their past sins, they're going to feel real, genuine regret, sorrow over what they've done. This is another way that Paul could be setting this up. He could be talking about the fact that the Corinthians are resting easy in their sin thinking that God won't do anything to them when, in fact, they should be expressing sorrow over it. One thinks of James 4, when after rebuking his readers for their idolatry, James warns of the discipline of God, and then he says in verses 8 through 10, Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Confession of sin, of course, carries this idea of humility, of admitting your error as you seek forgiveness. Paul could be saying that the Corinthians are lacking this kind of humility, choosing to boast in their sin, verse 6, instead of expressing sorrow over it. So what's the right answer? Well, I think it's both, actually. Paul has apparently warned the Corinthians about the dangers of associating with sexually immoral people. I think what Paul is trying to warn them about here is that in rejecting this counsel and saying to themselves, God isn't going to do anything, we're under grace, they're not just rejecting Paul's authority, they're also testing God. He's warning them, no, God does answer sin. And if you're not going to listen to me, then you're going to find that out the hard way. They'd be better served to mourn their sin than to think that God isn't going to do anything about it. It's very much the message of James 4. Earlier in this same chapter, James 4, James tells his readers this. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know with friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Basically, James tells his readers, it's because of the relationship you enjoy with God that he's actually going to correct your sin, not in spite of it. And so repent and escape the disciplinary instruction of God. And that then leads James into this discussion of replacing laughter with weeping and joy with sorrow. Paul is saying the same thing here. And listen here, I think he very much intends to present himself as the instrument of God's correction. I think we'll see this played up a bit more as we get into the next part of this passage next week. But that's what he's indicating at the end of chapter 4, right? He told them that if they didn't humble themselves, then he would come with the rod and he would discipline them personally. So I think this is what Paul is presenting to the Corinthians here. He's telling them that they need to humble themselves under this instruction he's delivered on behalf of God and mourn over their sin, since if they do not, if they maintain their arrogance and reject Paul's counsel that God does actually correct sin in the body of Christ, then the next time they'll see him, he'll come with a rod and discipline this people on behalf of God for their sin personally. So then, what does grace look like in the body of Christ? How do we apply this concept to our treatment of sin in the body? So far, I think we can take away two points, both of which can be stated negatively. First, grace does not mean that there are not consequences for sin in the body of Christ. Grace does not mean that there are not consequences for sin in the body of Christ. Clearly, there are. This seems to be part of what the Corinthians are thinking. They think that grace means that sins like this one are no longer judged by God, since they've already been judged in Christ, and so there's no longer any need now to correct sins like this one within the body. Far from it, they actually believe that acceptance of such people actually serves to magnify the gospel. Again, they appear to be boasting over this association, according to verse 6. Do you understand it? It's like I've said, they think themselves more advanced in the faith in Paul, and this is how they think their advanced spirituality is expressed. In fact, this is probably why they're so tolerant of This kind of sin in particular, sexual sin, the discussion of of, of sexual sin, just so you know, this is going to carry all the way into chapter 6. Paul is going to have to tell them to flee sexual immorality. And so this seems to be a sin that they're particularly reluctant to give up. That's probably rooted in their perception of themselves as quote-unquote spiritual people. We talked about this back in chapters 1 through 3. Paul has to spend time distinguishing the natural man from the spiritual man with the Corinthians. And that's because the Corinthians' pride is rooted in the fact that they perceive themselves to be especially spiritual people as indicated by their superior giftedness. You guys remember that, don't you? This is an incredibly gifted church spiritually. They have the spiritual gifts in abundance and particularly the speaking gifts. And they think that all of this is a sign of the fact that they're more advanced in the faith 
than Paul. And so now they don't see why they need to listen to him. Paul had to check this pride back in chapters 2 and 3, which he did by telling them that actually they were so immature that he couldn't even get into the more advanced doctrines with them. I think now we can probably understand what Paul is talking about. This is how they think that advanced spirituality is expressed. They think spirituality is expressed in a disregard for sins committed against the body. As one commentator puts it, their thinking goes like this, In Christ, through whom we have received the Spirit, who has lifted us above the merely earthly, all things are lawful. How can Paul call uh, what, what Paul calls sexual immorality be of any consequence to the truly spiritual person. So again, this is part of their boasting. They think their tolerance of sin is actually a sign of their maturity, a sign of the fact that they're participants in God's grace, that they even understand the gospel better than a guy like Paul. And I think you know this isn't true. Grace doesn't mean that God is indifferent about sin in the church. Far from it. In fact, grace actually means the exact opposite of that. It means that God will deal with sin in the church first. You see, in order to understand how grace is to be applied to the body, you first need to understand why God bestows this grace, why He forgives sin. And if I could put it this way, God didn't justify us. He didn't send His Son to die for our sin simply to give us license to sin. I mean, that's, that's a completely ludicrous thought to even consider, isn't it? That God would spill the blood of His precious Son and inflict all the wrath of hell on Him simply so that we could indulge in our idolatry, so that we could continue to engage in our rebellion and wage war on God without consequence. Absolutely no way. Why would God ever pay something that costs Him so much for something that He actually hates? It's an utterly ridiculous thought to even consider. So why does God forgive us? Why does he redeem us from the penalty of sin? And so that he also might redeem us from the power of sin and completely reconcile us to himself so that we might actually glorify God in our worship. Just like he designed us to do from the beginning. Through Christ, God redeems man so that being redeemed, man might do what God created him to do in the first place, and that's glorify God through our obedience and worship. And to quote the Apostle Paul himself, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Or as he says in Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Listen, we have been redeemed by grace, so that through this grace, 
we might turn from our sin and bear fruit for God. So friends, what do you think God is going to do when this people who God has you know, called and redeemed for this purpose, this people who bear His name, His bride, to use the imagery of Romans 7 and James 4, what's He going to do when they fail to live up to this purpose and prove themselves unfaithful by turning instead to the worship of idols as expressed in things like sexual immorality? I mean, do you think he's just going to stand by and let it happen? No. No. He's going to act. He's going to discipline his people in order to bring them into conformity with their calling. I mean, this is what the whole history of Israel should tell us, right? That God is actually less tolerant of sin among his own people than he is among outsiders who don't bear his name and whom he has not redeemed with an outstretched arm. Listen, we're not quite there yet, but starting in verse 6, Paul is going to return to the story of Israel's exodus, and he's going to draw a kind of parallel here between us and the people of Israel. He's going to explain the basis for this rejection of sin in the body, and it's going to come from our calling as a people who have been set apart by God as holy. So we can't respond to sin in the body with tolerance since, quote, we're under grace. Thinking that God no longer cares about these sins and is just going to stand by and let it happen. That's not what grace means. No, to quote the Apostle Paul once again, this time from Romans 6, 15 through 18. He says, what then, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Grace means redemption from sin in all its forms, not only in its penalty, but its power as well. And so when God's people are in sin, God will express His grace, not only in forgiving His people, and He will most definitely forgive His people, but His grace is expressed not only in forgiving His people, but in correcting them as well. He will discipline them for their sin as an expression of His love and zeal for them. And this leads us into our second summary point, which is this. Grace does not mean, it does not mean, that a body of believers should respond to known sin within its members with indifference or even boasting. Again, it should not respond to sin within its members with indifference or even boasting. Rather, it should be repulsed by the sin and mourn over it. I want you to note something about this passage that is very important to note for our discussion moving forward. 
really uh, pay attention here because we're going to be this is going to be a big deal over the next two weeks. I want you to observe here that what Paul takes issue with in this passage is less this man's sin and more the church's response to it. He takes issue less with the man himself and more with the church and how it responds to his sin. Did you guys catch that? What's really eating at Paul in this text is not that the man is living with his stepmother, but even more so that the church is tolerating it. Again, you guys see that? He never addresses the man in this passage. He addresses the church and he says, you are arrogant. You ought to mourn. Your boasting is not good. If you think about it, even the discipline that Paul is threatening in this passage, it's really not directed at the man, is it? It's directed at the body for their arrogance, which is expressed in their toleration of his sin. We'll get into this more next week, the, the, this notion of not only holiness, but of corporate holiness is going to be a, a significant topic in this passage, and I tell you, it's going to get steep quick. <laughs> and this is where the side issues are going to come out that make this passage really, really fascinating. But suffice to say, for the moment, the holiness that God demands here is corporate, meaning it has to do with the entire body of Christ as a whole, not just the sin of this particular individual. And this means that the discipline that God will inflict for this sin will not be suffered by this man alone, but by the entire body for their toleration of his sin in their presence. And this means that when there's sin in the body of Christ, we should respond not with indifference, but with mourning and even fear of what will take place if this sin is not dealt with. Again, we are God's people which means he's not indifferent towards the sin in our midst. But he will most certainly correct us, both for our sake and for his glory. In short, there are consequences to sin. And since there are consequences to sin, we should respond to sin not with indifference, but mourning. And not just individually, but corporately. All in all, the attitude that we should have towards sin as a body is the one that's expressed by Paul in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. When he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who, at work, who's, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what relationship with God means. It means that His nearness to us means that He will treat serious, sin seriously among us. And so we should conduct ourselves with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So then, so far we've seen how grace is misapplied in response to sin within the body. And now the question, I think, becomes... What are the consequences to sin in the body? 
And how is this revulsion towards sin expressed, right? We're supposed to mourn over it. We say that there's consequences to sin in the body. What does that all look like? How is this all expressed? And Paul is going to show us the answer to this question as he, get into the, as he gets into the actions that the church is to take when it encounters sin in the rest of this passage next week. And just so you know, the answer that he supplies there, it can test the church's humility, its willingness to submit to his instruction, I think, on a number of different levels. So I'd encourage you to come back as we continue with part two of this message next week. Let's pray.